the path of destruction. Prior to the onset of World War II in September 1939, Germany and the Soviet Union secretly became allies. They made an agreement, later called the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, to divide Eastern Europe into German and Soviet spheres of influence. Lithuania, along with Latvia, Estonia, and parts of Romania and Finland, fell into the Soviet sphere. Poland was divided between Germany and the Soviet Union. In the summer of 1940, the Soviet Union forced Lithuania into its orbit by demanding that Lithuania become a Soviet republic. Thousands of Soviet soldiers were stationed throughout the country. The Soviet occupation caused a tremendous upheaval in Lithuania. Employees of all companies were required to attend communist political training meetings. Businesses were either closed, as was a bank my father worked at, or taken over by the Soviets. My father had to find a new job. People who owned property or who were considered wealthy, the bourgeois elite, could be banished to Siberia. Anyone who resisted or spoke against the new communist regime was treated harshly. Changes were made to our school curriculum. Now our school was called Shalom Aleichem, and we were taught the Russian language. We had to study the history of the Soviet Union and the Communist Party. At the time, I was proud to be accepted into the Young Pioneer Group, which was like the Boy Scout movement, but with a communist indoctrination. I was also happy to wear the red tie they gave me. I was in grade six, and my life essentially continued as before. But in the summer of 1941, my life changed completely. Every summer, I looked forward to a vacation outside the city. Our family would rent a summer house somewhere beautiful, inland or by the sea. By the summer of 1941, under the new regime, this was no longer financially possible. The young pioneers had organized a summer camp in the town of Palanga by the Baltic Sea. As members of the pioneers, I was eligible to attend, and my parents suggested that I take the opportunity to get out of the city. But I did not want to go, and my parents accepted my decision. Although anti-Semitism was officially forbidden under the Soviet regime, I knew that the local Gentile kids would use every opportunity to gang up on the Jewish kids. I suspected that the teaching of equality had not yet sunk in deeply enough with some people. I had a bad feeling about that camp, but I could not have foreseen what a kind of disaster it would turn out to be. On June 22, 1941, the German army, without even declaring war, crossed the border into the Soviet Union ending their pact of nearly two years. I heard the German soldiers reached the pioneer camp that same day, and that right away the soldiers asked whether there were Jews in the camp. 
Apparently, some Gentile kids were immediately willing to point out their Jewish comrades. Most of the Jewish children were taken away and eventually shot and murdered, and I lost several of my school friends. One of them was Ellie Goldstein. My friend in Toronto, Abby Becker, a Holocaust survivor like me, was in that camp as well. When he saw that the Jews were being singled out, he jumped over a fence and took off by foot. It took him a week to make the trek back to Kaunas through side roads and by getting rides on horse-drawn wagons. I was 13 years old, and my life, though regular and tranquil until then, had suddenly turned. I could not have anticipated how drastically. I had been looking forward to starting high school that September, and my parents had ordered my new school uniform, a black suit with a stiff collar. I felt very proud in that uniform, and I had an official photograph taken, a copy of which was sent to my uncle in Africa. Thanks to him, I have a record of that moment in my life. Sadly, I never got to wear that school uniform. My school never reopened, and I never got to attend high school. When the German army entered Lithuania in June 1941, they encountered little or no resistance. The local population was pleased to see the backs of the communist Soviets and were almost welcoming to the German army. As soon as the Soviets left, the Lithuanians hurriedly established a provisional government in the hope that Germany would permit Lithuania to become independent again, as had been in 1939. This was not to be. Amongst the first laws passed by the Lithuanian provisional government was the law that Jews were not Lithuanian citizens and had no rights whatsoever. That is when the attacks on the Jews began. Vicious individuals and groups of so-called partisans delighted in robbing and killing Jews. Local Lithuanian nationalist gangs, whom we called white armbanders, brutally murdered hundreds of Jews during the first days of the occupation. Between June 25th and 27th, 1941, a savage massacre of helpless people, a pogrom, took place in Kaunas, followed by a second pogrom two days later. I felt the fear in my parents, a fear that was relentless, day and night. They worried constantly that they would be dragged out of the house and killed, which was happening to people we knew. Soon after the pogroms, between June 30th and July 7th, the white armbanders yanked approximately 5,000 Jews from their homes and locked them up in the 7th Fort, a military compound surrounded by brick walls. Over several days, all the men were murdered. Some women were shot, while others were released. The Lithuanian provisional government lasted for six weeks until the German authorities shut it down and established control over the country. Lithuania was now on another path of destruction. 
When Jews were ordered to walk in the gutter, my mother's proud bearing prompted a Nazi officer to bark at her. Don't walk so proud, Jewess. That summer, the Germans announced that all Jews must move from their homes in the community and relocate to a designated area. The Germans claimed that this was to protect the Jews from attacks by the local population. In fact, this gave them the opportunity to control every aspect of our lives. The restricted area became known as the ghetto and was divided into two parts, the large ghetto and the small ghetto, which were separated by a main road, Panerius Street, that runs through the area. A wooden bridge was built across the road so that we could get from one part of the ghetto to the other. The ghetto was established in the oldest, poorest part of town, known by the Jews as Slobodka. About 6,000 Jews and 2,000 Gentiles lived there before the war. The Gentiles had to move out of the area, while all the Jews of Kaunas and some Jews from surrounding areas had to move in. Approximately 30,000 Jews were forced into an area where seven or 8,000 people had previously lived. Families became frantic in the search for a living space. My parents were desperate until they finally found a Lithuanian family willing to exchange their poor home in the small ghetto for our apartment in the city. We left them our furniture in exchange for their inferior possessions. Only horse-drawn wagons and hand-pulled carts were allowed for moving our possessions. My father packed all our books in cartons and insisted that we take them into the ghetto with us. This did not sit well with my mother, who wanted to take things other than books. But eventually, all the cartons of books were stacked up in our cramped space in the ghetto. Most houses in the ghetto were old single or double-story wooden homes without running water. Instead, there were wells and hand pumps in the yard. The toilets were in the yard too. This required a huge adjustment to our way of life, but we could have lived with it if we had not been constantly harassed and threatened. In our area, German soldiers went from house to house demanding that we hand over all valuables, jewelry, wedding rings, furs, cameras, silverware, and musical instruments. All demands were preceded by a threat. If you hide something and we find it, we will shoot you and everyone else in the whole house. My parents gave up their wedding rings, silver candlesticks, a camera, and my mother's fur and jewelry. I remember the soldiers making a list of the items they took from us. They wrote our name on top and even gave us a copy. They gave us a receipt for what they stole from us. Some influential Lithuanians resented giving up their homes to Jews in the ghetto area and demanded their homes be returned to them. This was before barbed wire fence was erected. 
the boundaries of the ghetto was constantly changing, and we had to move out of the house and arrange to live in. In fact, we moved many times while we were in the ghetto. Each time we moved with fewer and fewer possessions. I remember lagging behind my parents and my uncles, carrying items from one place to another. In the end, we had one room, which we had to share with a single woman who had been living there before we moved in. But we still had our books with us. It took a while for life in the ghetto to settle down. The German authorities soon demanded that all Jewish men from age 15 to age 55 present themselves for work. Workers were required to be at the gate at the ghetto by 6 o'clock every morning. There they were formed into brigades and marched under guard to various workplaces. Some were building the airport, others were digging ditches, building roads, cleaning hospitals or working in factories. This was strenuous work and it was slave labor, no pay. The workers were told they were lucky to receive food in the ghetto. I was 13 years old, I wasn't going to school, and I did not have to go to work. I had nothing to do. As soon as the Jews of Kovno were driven into the ghetto, teachers from the wide network of Jewish schools in the city before the war began to talk about creating a school for children. The need was great, for there were children who had lost their parents during the early killings and also some orphans from the Jewish orphanage of Kovno. My uncle, Gedalia Vilenchuk, who was for many years the managing director of the Jewish orphanage, began to work with a committee to establish such a school. Gedalia was a prominent member of the community. The committee had difficulty finding a place in the ghetto, but with some assistance from the Ältestenrat, the Jewish Council of Elders, a place was secured and the school began functioning. That contact brought my uncle Gedalia into the circle of the ghetto management, which later influenced our chances for survival. When we lived in the small ghetto section, there were worrying rumors that the Germans were planning some kind of action. No one knew any details. One day in September 1941, a German officer, Captain Fritz Jordan, came to the Ältestenrat and gave them 5,000 certificates bearing his name, instructing them to give these only to working tradespeople. When word spread about these documents, which were promptly called Jordan Shine Certificate, it was suspected that they might give some kind of protection. I do not know how these certificates were being distributed, but I clearly remember a heated discussion between my uncle Tanhum and Gedalia who, due to his access to the Jewish council, had access to these certificates. He appeared very reluctant to go and ask for preferred treatment in obtaining these from the council, and his brother berated him for that, 
telling him that if he did not use his connections as others would, he should resign from his position and make space for someone else to benefit. Eventually, Gedalia went and returned with four Jordan certificates. My father got one, and each of my three uncles took one. On October 4, 1941, we were awakened from our beds at about six in the morning by loud bangs on our doors and shouts of, Get out! We dressed hurriedly and were told to go to a large square just outside the small ghetto. The barbed wire fence was opened at this point. Many German soldiers and Lithuanian guards were present. Some activity was going on near the two hospitals in our area. A heavy fog hung in the air, and we could not see clearly. Then the soldiers demanded that anyone with Jordan certificates stand to one side. Our whole family moved over. After a while, our group were driven out over the bridge to the large ghetto. We saw that the Hospital of Contagious Diseases was surrounded with soldiers as we walked past it. We went to the Knebels, my mother's half-sister and her family, and they squeezed their family in and made space for all of us in one large room. We had arrived with no possessions whatsoever. We had nothing but the clothes on our backs. The rest of the Jews from the small ghetto were taken to the ninth fort and murdered. They also took away the children from the orphanage and school in the small ghetto. Close to 2,000 people were murdered that day. Soon we arrived in the large ghetto. We saw fire where we had come from. The Germans had locked up the gates and doors to the contagious diseases hospital and set it on fire with the patients, nurses, and one doctor inside. I climbed up the higher spot in the ghetto and watched the fire, thinking of what must have been going on inside. We were later allowed to go back into the small ghetto and collect some belongings, carrying everything in our backs over the bridge. I also remember carrying books hidden in bags of clothes. Our family in the ghetto consisted of my mother, my father, and my maternal grandmother, Alte, as well as my mother's three brothers, Tankum, Gedali, and David, and David's wife, Miriam, Mary. David and Mary had a baby girl, Shulamit, who was around five months old at the time. Before moving into the ghetto, my uncle David had been a very successful and respected tailor in Kaunas. He had a distinguished clientele, including government ministers, and so had managed to save a good deal of money. He converted some of that money to Russian gold coins, known as Chavonsi. At some point between 1938 and 1939, the Lithuanian government had passed a law that no one was permitted to own gold. All gold had to be exchanged at the bank for paper money. Uncle David decided not to give up his gold. He placed the coins in a bag and hid it between two walls in the apartment. When the Germans forced us out of our homes, Uncle David, as significant risk, brought these coins with him into the ghetto. 
At that point, our whole family was still living in a large wooden building in a small ghetto. Before the war, this building had housed the world-famous Slobodka Yeshiva, a Jewish religious seminary for young men. The wooden building was old, without modern facilities. In the yard, there was a communal latrine with a long row of toilet seats over a deep cement hole. When the order came for the Nazis to hand over all money, gold, silver, cameras, musical instruments, furs, jewelry, and in fact anything of value, my Uncle David decided not to give his hard-earned gold to the Nazis. He sewed up 12 leather bags, each about 3 inches by 8 inches, filled them with gold coins, and threw the bags of gold into the latrine. The latrine was full, and the bags immediately sunk to the bottom. When we had to leave the small ghetto, we moved out of that old seminary building, and as I mentioned, crossed the wooden bridge into the large ghetto to live with our relatives, the Knebel family. The nine of us, my three uncles, my Aunt Mary, baby Shulamit, my grandmother, my parents, and I, shared one large room. The food supply in the ghetto was controlled by the Nazis, and less and less of it was being delivered to the Altestenrat, whose job it was to distribute food to the inmates. The weekly food ration was hardly enough to sustain a normal person, and people who worked outside the ghetto risked a beating trying to buy food to smuggle back into the ghetto to their families. We soon began to experience extreme hunger, but we realized that it was possible to buy additional food on the black market. Those who had hidden some money managed to bribe the Lithuanian police who were guarding the ghetto. Bread, butter, flour, and even cattle were brought in secretly and slaughtered in the ghetto for kosher meat. And so, to avoid starvation, we began to think about how we could retrieve the gold my Uncle David had thrown in the latrine. First, my Uncle Gedalia signed himself up to join the work unit that cleaned the small ghetto area. Luckily, he was assigned to clean the building of the yeshiva where we had lived. He was prepared. He had fitted a long stick with a bent nail at the end for a hook. The latrine had been emptied, and only a shallow layer of excrement remained at the bottom. Through a hole, he poked around with a stick until he was able to detect the leather bags with the gold, but he could not hook them on the stick. My uncle went looking for help. Luckily, he found a man whose job it was to empty the latrines. We called him the Shmaravoz, a derogatory name that meant someone who was extremely dirty. Gedalia approached him and told him that there was gold in the latrine and asked if he would help get it out. Do we share 50-50, the man asked? Uncle agreed. They returned to the latrine and the Shmaravoz put on his long leather gloves, lowered himself into the hole, and walked along the bottom, sliding along the floor in his tall boots. 
Soon he felt something on the ground, picked it up and asked my uncle, who was watching him through one of the toilet seats above, if that was what he was looking for. It was. He handed the bag to my uncle. The next bag he picked up, he put into his own large pocket. He picked up all 12 bags and gave six to my uncle, who placed them in his trouser and coat pockets and kept six for himself. By this time, the Shmaravos climbed out of the hole. The workday was over and it was time to go back to the large ghetto. My uncle was concerned about entering the gate as the guards often searched the workers who were returning. Don't worry about that. You just stay close to me and the wagon, said the Shmaravos. On arriving at the gate, the man shouted to the German guards, The 4711 Brigade is coming. 4711 is the name of a famous eau de Coron, a popular perfume still available today. It was a jokey way of saying that we were the Stink Brigade. All the guards held their noses and moved as far as possible from the wagon and the horrible smell. My uncle, the Shmaravoz, and the horse-drawn wagon marched into the ghetto undisturbed. I remember very clearly my uncle coming home and knocking on the window from outside. I saw my father open the window and ask, What's this terrible smell? (laughs) Don't ask, Julius. Just come outside. I have the gold. They washed the bags outside by the water pump, then cut them open and washed the coins several times. My father helped my uncle take off his clothes and burned them in a hole outside the house. We had the gold. New bags of leather were sewn, and my father, who worked in the ghetto hospital, had the task of hiding the gold. He buried the six bags of gold under the foundation wall of the second basement of the hospital. Over time, he took everyone, including me, to see the hiding place in case one of us survived. Once a month, my father removed one coin and brought it to Uncle David. Uncle David had a contact who would buy the coin for a large pack of paper money, either German Reichsmark or Soviet rubles, as both currencies had value. The one gold coin per month fed our family of nine and the Knebel family of eight, plus other members of the wider family, including my Aunt Mary's family. I knew people who were hungry in the ghetto. Without the gold and the extra rations we were able to buy, it would have been very difficult to feed all the members of our family for those three years in the ghetto. We spent the money carefully as we never knew how long we would be there and feared running out of gold. There was also the possibility of trying to escape from the ghetto to hide in a peasant's home somewhere and that would be very costly. We also placed one coin in the heel of one shoe of each member of our family in case of sudden deportation. I believe we used up about a third of the gold coins during the three years in the ghetto. The rest remained under the foundation wall in the basement of the hospital, which was burned down after we left the ghetto in 1944. 
On October 28, 1941, an announcement was posted that stated that no one was to go to work the next day. At six o'clock in the morning, everyone would have to gather in Democratus Square, the large field in the middle of the ghetto. There were to be no exceptions. Even children and those who were sick had to come to the field. Anyone found at home would be shot on the spot. No reason was given. Leave the doors unlocked were the instructions. My grandmother was very ill, and there was no way she could walk to the field. So we set her up with food and water and left her at home. Early in the morning on October 29, 26,000 people assembled on that field. We were told to gather in family units. At one end of the field stood SS Gestapo Master Sergeant Helmut Rauka. Families were instructed to approach him. He questioned the adults as to where they worked and who their family members were. He then directed families to go either to the right or to the left. The families on the left would return home. The families on the right had to gather outside the ghetto near the fence. Where soldiers were guarding them, the entire ghetto population was made to walk past Rauka. It took the whole day. We had no idea what was going on. At the end of the day, when our family approached, Rauka seemed uninterested in us. He just waved us away. It appeared he had his quota and needed no more. I saw that the families who had gone to the right were surrounded by soldiers and sent to the small ghetto. We rushed home to find my grandmother still in bed. No one had looked into our home. Sadly, she died a few days later and was buried in the ghetto cemetery. The morning after the selection by Rauka, we saw a large mass of people. Being marched away from the ghetto toward the Ninth Fort on the hill, the Ninth Fort was a large military compound surrounded by stone walls. That same day, all these men, women, and children, nine thousand two hundred people, were murdered, gunned down. Their bodies were thrown into long trenches that had been dug beforehand. By Russian prisoners of war, the supervisors were Germans. The shooters were Lithuanians. This tragic event was known as the Great Action. The Nazis kept meticulous records of their crimes. The Jaeger Report, chilling document that was written by Karl Jaeger, commandant of Killing Squad Einsatzkommando Drei. Three recorded that on the day of October twenty nine, two thousand and seven men, two thousand nine hundred twenty women, and four thousand two hundred and seventy three children were murdered, a total of nine thousand two hundred. Reason for executions: solving the Jewish problem in Lithuania. The officer who oversaw the whole operation and made the selections, Helmut Rauka, later became well known to Canadians. 
He entered Canada in 1950 and became a Canadian citizen in 1956. Arrested in 1982, he was charged with 11,584 murders and was extradited to Germany for trial, becoming the first Canadian to be arrested and extradited on war crime charges. Rauka died in prison at age 74 before his case came to trial. News, gossip, and conversation in the ghetto were all about death. To avoid contemplating how I was going to die, I found activities to keep me occupied. In a small patch of earth in the yard, I planted some tomato and cucumber seeds. I didn't expect them to grow, but they did. Everyone mocked me, saying, How long do you plan to be here in the ghetto? I didn't reply. Later, when I produced radishes, beautiful tomatoes, and cucumbers, our neighbors living around the same yard became very jealous. <laughs> they formed a committee and divided the land between us all. And I was left with a narrow strip by the fence. I had observed that cucumbers have thin tendrils that cling to anything. So I strung up rough string from the ground to the top of the fence and planted cucumbers at the bottom. Lo and behold, the cucumbers plants climbed up the strings and my cucumbers ripened while hanging in the air. I had very clean, perfect cucumbers. <laughs> at the end of the season, the neighbors watched me drying tomato seeds for planting next year. They were horrified and yelled at me, You plan to be here another year? <laughs> As if by preparing to plant seeds for the following year, I was causing the continuation of our suffering in the ghetto. But the next year's spring, we were still there, and I planted again. And so did all our neighbors, who begged me for some seeds. That fall, they got furious when I began to collect seeds again. This time they were right. I never got to plant the seeds again. Another activity that kept me occupied was looking for wood to burn to heat the house. And I would wander around the yards looking for anything that could burn. I carried a little crude saw that I hid under my jacket. I would get out of at night with a woman with whom we shared one room. She was a feisty woman who had been brought up in the Jewish orphanage and was much tougher than me. When we came upon a wooden picket fence, she would stand guard while I sawed the boards. We weren't the only ones doing this, and there was not much to find. One night, however, we came across a fully intact white picket fence around the house. The house was dark and it was very quiet around. Carefully and quietly, I sawed through the top crossbar and the lower crossbar. I thought I had cut through the bars completely and could lift out the whole section without making a noise. But the section would not move. So to free it, I bent it downward, which caused a loud screech from the bottom boards breaking. In the dark, I didn't see that the bottom boards hadn't been sawn through. 
Immediately a light in the house went on. People ran out, some in their underwear, screaming, thieves, thieves. Suddenly a Jewish ghetto policeman was on the scene, and I took off. My partner remained there, pretending she was just passing by. The policeman ran after me. I fled towards a field with high bushes, hoping to dive in there. But the policeman, breathing heavily, was too close. He caught up with me, grabbed me by the arm, and dragged me back to the scene of the crime. I told him, half sobbing, that I was not a thief and that I was just trying to take some wood from the fence. We came back to the house, and he asked the owners what I had stolen from them. They were furious and shouted, he cut down the fence. The policeman let go of my arm and said, that is not stealing. He walked away. (laughs) By this time, there were more people around, and my partner shouted, That poor kid just wanted some firewood and they accused him of stealing. Then the whole crowd began to break up the fence. Even the owners came out with saws, then trying to save some wood for themselves. Within a half hour, there was no fence whatsoever. My partner urged me to grab some wood too, but I was too upset. So she was left to bring a few sticks home on her own. The ghetto had its own rules and its own morality. I had to wonder what had happened to me. As I mentioned, we were forbidden to own anything of value. My parents had already turned into wedding rings, jewelry, silver, candlesticks, watches and cameras. We were forbidden to read newspapers and own radios. Then we heard they were coming for our books. The order from the Nazis came on February 27, 1942. Hand over your books. Like all other orders, the book Aktion came with a threat that disobedience meant death. My father was heartbroken that he had to give up his beloved books. He had insisted on bringing all our books into the ghetto, and we had carted them from place to place. When the time came to hand them over, he selected some of his less favorite books and stuck them in a wheelbarrow. Then he and I went to deliver the books into the synagogue, which was the designated collection center. When we arrived at the synagogue with our wheelbarrow full of books, an amazing sight greeted us. The benches had been removed and the small room was filling up with a mountain of books reaching from the entrance almost up to the balcony at the back, which was a women's section. People were walking over books, falling over books, and kept coming to drop off more books. My father surveyed this sad scene and remarked to me that the Germans had posted no guards. They trust us with the books, he exclaimed. Then he looked down and noticed some books that were nicely bound in red cloth. Look at this, all ten books of the Pushkin collection of 1937. I wanted to buy them last year, but could not afford it. Pushkin, the greatest Russian poet, died in 1837. And in 1937, 
an anniversary edition of all his poetry was published. So there was my father holding in his hands the ten books of the deluxe edition of the greatest poet of the Russian language. My father turned to me and said, Ellie, take out the books we brought and leave them on the pile. Then put these in the wheelbarrow. We'll take them home. He bent down again and picked up two volumes of History of the Jews in German by Gretz. Put these in the wheelbarrow too, he said. It's a fine set. Looking further, he picked out the books he wanted. Now the wheelbarrow was full, so we covered it with a newspaper and we went home. And we did the trip seven times, going with an empty wheelbarrow, coming back with a full one. My mother was afraid and angry. What are you doing? You want them to come and kill us all. Don't worry, said my father. We won't keep them in the house. Now we had a whole new collection of books, which we had to hide. In the yard of the house where we lived, there was a large garden shed. I climbed into the attic space above the board ceiling, and my father handed me all the books. It was dark there, so to get light, I lifted out a clay tile or two from the roof above. Over the next few days, I spent all my time up there in the shed, and with boards and bricks, I sorted out the books and built bookshelves. I had a great library. Although there was no school for me, I spent a lot of time reading world literature. I taught myself Russian quite well by reading and memorizing Pushkin's poetry, which I really loved. I read the Russian classics, Tolstoy, Lermontov, the Greats. I read the German classics too. I walked through Goethe's Faust, an effort like reading much later Milton's Paradise Lost in English. That was my education in the ghetto. The fate of those books was the same as the fate of the Jews. When the time came to evacuate the last of the Jews, all the buildings in the ghetto were set ablaze and burned down. <laughs>